Our Bible reading is uh, chosen from the book of Exodus chapter 4, from verse 1 to the end. Then Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seen, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite, and know that he can speak well? Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your, your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking, to, who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met, uh, met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, 
Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Thank you very much to Calvin, uh, who represents the Phoenix View, the Waterfall View Life Group, and to Pam, who represents the Phoenix View Life Group. Both groups, I'm told, lay claim to greatest life group in all the world. So, Tebza, if you're listening, if you're out there, I don't think you need to stand for that. Both laying claim to your title. Uh, if you live in that, that area and you're not yet a member of the life group, please just grab Calvin. Grab Pam after the service and uh, chat to them about how you might get involved. Uh, folks, I need to appeal to you all, please do not encourage Kate in her idolatry. Uh, so straight after the service, we're going to have a prayer vigil. It's going to last a week. That's what it's going to take to exercise Chelsea from her heart. I'm just kidding, Kate. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Folks, we're going to... Um, Allow Charles Spurgeon to, to lead us in a word of prayer, and then we will come to God's word. So won't you pray with me? Father, as always, we come to you mindful um, of the fact that we have nothing but dependence. Uh, we bring nothing but our dependence on you, our, our need for you. And so we ask that you will bring us to yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will not look outside of you, Lord Jesus, for anything, for everything is in you. Our sin is pardoned, our sinful nature is subdued, we have a perfect righteousness, we have an immortal life, we have a sure hope, we have an immovable foundation. Why should we look beyond you? O oh, Saviour, this morning we pray that you will reveal yourself anew. Teach us a little more. Help us to go a little deeper into the divine mysteries. May we grip you and grasp you. May we suck out of you the nutriment for our spirits. May we be in you as a branch is in the stem. And then, Lord, may we leave here and bear fruit from you. Without you, we can do nothing. Amen. What does it take to believe? What does it take to trust in the Lord? And how's it going? How is your faith? Do you have faith? How would you know? How would you measure? These are some of the questions thrown out by today's passage of Scripture. It's a passage all about faith. It starts in unbelief and it ends in belief. 
And the whole chapter is concerned with the question of how we move from one to the other. So we're going to go on the journey. When you think of Moses, you probably think mighty man of faith, and you would be right. But isn't it refreshing and reassuring to see that that's not how it started, and that it wasn't easy, and that failure is a recurring theme? It's reassuring because if we're honest, that's our life of faith. So how does Moses start out? Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Here's Moses in conversation with God at the burning bush. You'll remember from last week, God wants him to go and confront Pharaoh, but he must start by confronting the elders of Israel. And as you can imagine, Moses isn't all that excited about either proposition. He says, what if the elders of Israel don't believe me? As the story unfolds, we begin to realize that this story is not only about Israel's faith. It's actually about the faith of Moses himself. But the Lord is gracious and patient, and he offers Moses three signs to bolster his faith. Three signs. The signs are not arbitrary. They're not just random acts of power, random demonstrations of God's power. If they were... Why would there need to be three? Surely, if the point was God is powerful, one sign would be enough. And why these specific signs? God could have chosen anything to demonstrate his power. But remember, a sign, by its very nature, has to point to some reality. So what are these particular signs pointing to? Let's have a look. Exodus 4 verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, it became a snake, and he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. By asking that opening question, what is in your hand? The Lord focuses our attention, Moses' attention, on the staff. The staff is a symbol of authority. The staff becomes a snake who exercises authority over Moses. Moses has to flee from the snake's presence. In this scene, we're seeing the whole history of the relationship between Moses and Pharaoh playing out before our eyes. And in fact, we're seeing before that the relationship between Adam and the serpent playing out before our eyes. Remember, Adam submitted to the serpent and had to flee the garden. Pharaoh is the serpent-like figure who chased Moses out of Egypt. But the Lord says, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Moses obeys and the snake hardens back into a staff. The authority returns to Moses. The sign is showing Moses that Pharaoh's heart will harden, but the Lord will use his defiance to hand the authority back to Moses. The sign is saying to Moses, you can have faith in the Lord because he will give you the victory over the serpent. Second sign, verse 6. 
Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put your hand back into your cloak, he said. Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. In the history of Israel, leprosy was a symbol of uncleanness that resulted in exclusion, alienation, exile. During the period of the tabernacle when Israel was on the move in the wilderness, if you had leprosy, you had to go outside the camp. And if you were healed, you had to undergo a cleansing ceremony before you could come back into the camp. So what does this sign mean? It's not all that clear in the translation, but Moses actually places his hand on his heart. And when he brings it out, it's white with leprosy. Then he places it back on his heart, and it comes out again clean. Moses is enacting a purification of the heart. The Lord will cleanse Israel. The Lord will deal with whatever it is that is keeping Israel from entering into the promised land. The Lord will deal with Israel's alienation. The second sign points to the end of exile for God's people. Third sign, verse 9. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Centuries after the Exodus, Egypt would become known as the breadbasket of the entire Roman Empire. So even in ancient Egypt, even in the ancient world, Egypt was known as an agricultural powerhouse. The interesting thing is that Egyptian farming was not watered by local rainfall. We know this from primary school geo geography. It's a dry place, it's a desert land. It was watered by irrigation from the Nile River. The Nile was the source of all this bounty. The Nile also had an important religious function. Egyptians, ordinary Egyptians would go into the Nile to purify themselves from any offense which they have, might have caused the gods. So in the Egyptian worldview, the Nile was a symbol, a great symbol of life and purity. But the Lord had a different perspective. Why? So Egyptians saw life and purity. The Lord saw something else. Think back to Moses' childhood. The Nile had been an instrument of state-sponsored murder. All those Hebrew baby boy, boys cast away, left to drown in the Nile. So when the Lord looked at the Nile, he didn't see life and purity. He saw death and evil. When Moses poured water from the Nile on the ground, it would cry out for justice like the blood of Abel. It was a cry that the Lord has seen. He has seen. He will expose the secrets of the Nile. And he will bring justice. The first three signs. The serpent, defeat of the tyrant. Leprosy, end of exile. Blood of the Nile, final justice. 
Three signs showing that the Lord would defeat the tyrant in the exile, usher in final justice. Three signs that the Lord should be trusted. The Lord should be trusted. Before we get to the fourth sign, the unofficial sign, we read this in verse 21. Have a look there. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. I point to this passage because it's right at the heart of the meaning of the Exodus story. Just like Exodus 15, if you uh, want some homework. This passage, Exodus 15, are good places to go if you want to get the heartbeat of the Exodus story. This passage teaches us that God wants a people for himself. He wants a people for himself, but not just a people. He wants a family. He wants a firstborn son who can inherit everything he has to offer. All that he is and all that he has. But his firstborn son is in slavery. Pharaoh is oppressing God's firstborn. He will not let him go. In the end, by the principle of proportional retribution, proportional justice, it will cost Pharaoh his own firstborn son. All of that is by way of preamble to lead us into the fourth sign. Look at verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took out a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. I don't know about you, but that's got to be one of the most confusing passages in all of the Bible. Right? God says to Moses, go and redeem my people. And then he prepares him. He equips him with three signs to show him exactly what it's all about. And as Moses is finally now plucked up the courage in trust and obedience, and he's on his way to Egypt, God comes to kill him. What on earth is going on? How do we make sense of that? We have to read it in context. The immediate context is the death of the firstborn for the freedom of Israel. God has drawn a sharp line between the firstborn of Israel and the firstborn of Egypt. On the one side is life and freedom, on the other side is death and judgment. That's the immediate context. The wider context is that Moses was in Adam. In the garden, Adam had aligned himself with the snake. He had submitted to the snake. And so he had to flee the garden of the Lord's presence. After Adam, humanity was condemned to live in exile under the curse and then die. And yet, 
God in his mercy makes a covenant of life and blessing with Abraham. It was a free promise of life and blessing and so it was a covenant of grace. The sign of that covenant, the covenant of life and blessing, the covenant of grace, the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Every male in the covenant community was to be circumcised eight days old. Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, was not circumcised. Moses was treating him like any Egyptian father would treat his Egyptian son. As if the family was outside of the covenant of grace. As if they still lived under the curse of judgment and death. By this failure of trust and obedience, Moses was choosing death for himself and his family. And so in desperation, his wife Zipporah, another female hero in the story, circumcises the boy, rubs the blood on Moses' legs in a declaration of obedience and trust to protect the family from judgment and death. So what do we do with this very strange story? Now that we have that background, we have to see it as a foretaste of the Passover. Moses, once again, Moses is Israel reduced to one. The fourth sign, the blood on the frame of Moses is a sign of grace for God's people. It's a sign that they are also under the judgment of death and that they only escape that judgment by grace and a blood sacrifice. I hope by now you can see where this is headed. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees told Jesus, Teacher, we want a sign from you. But he replied to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Moses had four signs, we have one. The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, Moses' three signs and our one sign are pointing to the same reality. It is ultimately only by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that the serpent, the Satan, is finally defeated because he has no claim on us. That our exile, our alienation from God comes to an end. That justice is served on us and for us as Jesus takes it on himself. God's firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the blood sacrifice for our freedom. It is his blood that covers us and saves us from judgment and death. It is faith in his death and resurrection that keeps us in the covenant of grace and saves us and sets us free. And faith is what this chapter is all about. By the end of the chapter, Israel has faith. What did it take? What can we learn from a chapter that starts in unbelief and ends in belief? How are we going to trust God enough to receive this free gift of life in his family?
Well, let's have a look and see. Verse 29, Exodus chapter 4. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. The first step in faith is to hear. As the Apostle Paul says, faith comes from hearing. Couldn't put it any plainer, could he? Faith comes from hearing. You have to hear the gospel. You have to hear that the Lord is concerned about you, that he has seen your misery. You have to hear that he's done something about it. You have to hear that he's done what it takes to free you from your slavery to sin and to death and to Satan. You have to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. You have to hear. And that's not a once-off event. Faith is an everyday struggle, every day. As Herman Baving said, there is no faith without struggle. To believe is to struggle, to struggle against the appearance of things. This is what Moses saw. Right? Let's think about what he saw. He saw that he was a shepherd in the back end of nowhere. He saw that Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the whole world. He saw that the Egyptian economy depended on free slave labor. He saw that Pharaoh would never in a million years let the people go and that he would probably be killed for asking. That's what he saw. And what he saw was a lie. What do you see? Maybe you look inward and you see a small insignificant person who can achieve nothing in the kingdom. Maybe you look upward and you see a God who just has better things to do than care about the details of your life. Maybe you look backward and you see a life littered with bad choices and you just can't see a way out of this. There is just no way out from under this guilt and this shame. Maybe you look around and everything just looks chaotic and lost and hopeless. If that's what you see, what you see is a lie. And so if you can't trust what you see, if you can't trust the appearance of things, you have to make sure that you're hearing the truth. If you can't see the truth, you have to make sure that you're hearing it. And that means that you have to make sure that you are in a position to hear it regularly. God speaks his truth through his word. To hear him, you have to read the Bible. 
by yourself, for yourself, with others, in small groups, one-on-one, here on a Sunday. And if the struggle against the appearance of things is an everyday struggle, and you and I know that it is, then you need to hear him speak the truth every single day. You have to be in God's word every day. If you are not, you are very quickly going to begin to lose the struggle against the appearance of things. And the appearance of things will become your reality. Very quickly. First, you need to hear. But then, you need to believe. Because of course, hearing is not believing. Even knowing is not believing. You can turn up here every week and listen. You can know all the facts about Jesus. You can know all the minute Levitical details about every Old Testament festival. You can name all the stops on Paul's missionary journey in reverse alphabetical order. You can know all the arguments for pre-millennial dispensationalism. You can know all of that, but none of that is the same as what the Bible calls belief. To know is just not enough. The Bible says that even the demons know. Demons are more theologically orthodox than you and I will ever be. In other words, they know, but they certainly don't believe, because to believe is to trust. Biblical belief is the allegiance of trust. Faith is not about holding your breath and singing the same line of the same song over and over again to try and work up some conviction in yourself. Faith is not the power of positive thinking. It's not that. When I was growing up, there was a video doing the rounds. Must have been a VHS cassette if it was when I was growing up. But anyway, on this video, there was a Russian who could bend spoons with his mind just with the power of his mind. I'm sure it was, it was Cold War propaganda. You have your nuclear arsenal, but we can bend spoons with our minds. Point is this. We often think of faith like that. Often. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's our default. If I just had more willpower, I could zap this cash into my bank. Right? That is not biblical faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, truly was a man of faith. He was a martyr for the faith. And I think he says it so well. This is what he says. Faith means to base life on a foundation outside myself, on Christ. Faith means to be torn out of the imprisonment of one's ego. Faith alone is certainty. Everything outside of faith is subject to doubt. Jesus Christ alone is the certainty of faith. Faith is placing your trust in Jesus Christ. It is investing your security, your certainty, your truth in him and drawing it from him. 
So, you hear what Jesus has to say to you. You hear that your sins are forgiven. You hear the promise of freedom and life to the full, the abundant life. That's what he promises you. You hear it. You hear the invitation to come to him and lay your burdens down and rest in him. You hear, but do you believe? Do you trust? Can you trust him? How are you going to trust him? Exodus 4 verse 29 again. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed signs before the people and they believed. Moses and Israel were given three signs to verify what the Lord was saying. We are given the cross and the resurrection. The cross says Jesus is willing to do anything to win you back to your father. The empty tomb says he is able to do anything to win you back to your father. The cross says Jesus loves you beyond any love you will ever experience. The empty tomb says he will keep every promise he has ever made. Meditate on the cross and the resurrection. And ask yourself, can I trust him? There is no one you can trust more. That is what Bonhoeffer meant when he said, the only certainty there is, is in Jesus Christ. Do you see it now? Do you see where he got it? He got it from the cross and the resurrection. The only certainty there is, is in Jesus Christ. How do you know that you are trusting him? If you want to know that you are trusting Jesus, how can you measure? In a word, obedience. Obedience. In our relationship with God, trust is measured by obedience. Why would that be the case? Well, just think about a leader in your life, any leader in your life. How does your leader know that you trust him or her? You do what he says. Even, especially, especially when from your perspective, the outcome is unknown, or perhaps even risky, dangerous. Obedience is how you express trust to a leader. Jesus is infinitely our leader. We have more reason to trust him than anyone else. If we do, we will obey him. He says, follow me, we will follow after him. Trust and obedience go together like cause and effect, like flame and heat, like sound and echo. And to some extent, that's also true of worship. Worship is the next element of faith that our passage talks about. And it follows on from the previous elements. So again, Exodus 4 verse 30, And Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. They believed. 
And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Faith comes from hearing. Genuine faith expresses itself in obedience. If you hear and you know and you trust and you obey, you will worship. Worship will flow out of you spontaneously. You cannot experience someone so beautiful, so compelling, so kind and compassionate, so pure and generous. You cannot experience God and not celebrate his goodness. That's what worship is. It is rejoicing in the godness of God. It is simply saying in thought, in word, and in deed, I treasure you above all else. Because there is nothing in my life worth more to me than you. That's worship. And true worship is where the stream of faith breaks out into the ocean. So there you go. There's the formula for faith. Hear, trust, obey, worship. What could be more simple? Now go and do likewise. Simple but not so simple, right? Simple in theory maybe, but in practice, why is my faith so fickle? Why does my faith feel like I'm on a roller coaster, sick with nausea, and I just can't get off? If you feel like that, as I often do, it's because we've overlooked one element, the foundational element, the key element. Moses was struggling to trust, struggling to obey, shifting in his shoes, looking for loopholes, 50 justifications as to why it makes sense not to obey. Sound familiar? And then verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? If we don't place the Lord at the very center, then faith is nothing but a formula. And my friends, it's not a formula for success. Faith by its very nature is a posture of utter dependence on the grace of God from start to finish. You cannot hear the gospel, truly hear it, unless he gives you ears to hear. You cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and worship unless he gives you eyes to see. Trust and obedience are impossible. Our hearts are hard and rebellious like Pharaoh unless he softens our hearts. Faith is the beggar invited to the banquet who does nothing but hold out his bowl to accept the invitation. That's what you and I contribute to the heavenly feast. Luther said, faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives the free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Who is it that gives the eye and the hand and the mouth? Is it not I, 
says the Lord. Friends, in the life of faith, we do nothing, achieve nothing, hear nothing, believe nothing without the gracious, enabling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, prayer has to be the final element of faith. I mentioned it last, but in the life of faith it should come first. Because the life of faith, as we've been saying, from first to last is the life of dependence on God and nothing expresses our dependence on God like prayer. If you want to measure your faith, look at your prayer life, your private prayer life. And then throw yourself on the mercy of the one who gives us all things, including the gift of faith. This then is the life of faith. Hear, trust, obey, worship, and pray. Let's do that now. Please will you join me as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him we have the one sign that we need to believe. Thank you that he is everything we are not. That his trust in you was perfect. That it always, without exception, expressed itself in loving obedience. That his trust never faltered, even in the face of the cross. Father, keep us from placing faith in our faith. Keep our faith in him and in him alone. Lord, we remember, we acknowledge this morning, he alone is the faithful one. Father, in the spirit of Christ, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hands and feet to live out the life of faith. Help us to hear, trust, obey, and worship. Make us into a people of faith. And we thank you for this gift of prayer, this gift of access to you that is only ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone could win for us. Help us to prayerfully depend on you in everything, Lord. Help us to be constant and fervent in prayer as we seek to live this life of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, as always, uh, if you need prayer, please just stay in your seats. Uh, can I ask you, or can I encourage you to, to, to keep uh, faithful and obedient in your giving? Christchurch Midrand depends entirely on the, gracious, the graciousness of God working in and through his people to support us with uh, your offerings. So um, please do bear that in mind. And... Uh, all the usual avenues for giving are available, but please do not grow weary of doing good in that regard. This church exists on the giving of its people. That is the reality. Don't forget your social distancing as you leave. Let's love each other in that way. God bless you. We'll be back in Exodus next week, God willing. Take care.